You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is F-I-R-R-O-A-D-C-C dot org. Now for this week's message. Good morning. So we just sang a few songs that talked about obstacles, challenges, chains that kind of hold us back. I think in our experiences of trying to connect with God, of trying to worship God, of trying to go to the spaces and places that God is at, there's oftentimes obstacles that get in the way, things that get in the way, things that that fight back, things that resist, and there's sometimes struggles that are involved with us getting to experience God in the way that we hope to, whether that be spiritual, whether that be physical, whether that be emotional, but there seems to be battles and challenges that come up as we try to go to the different places that God might be taking us to, to experiencing the things that God wants us to experience. Uh, For me, in my experience of trying to go to the Holy Land, that very much was the case. Uh, Going back to, you know, I got to go there this summer, but really this journey started two and a half years ago when I first heard about this opportunity to go with this Stand and See Fellowship. Another pastor told me about this, and I got to start praying about it. I started to focus on it and get more details. I went through the application process, the interview process, got accepted into this fellowship. And then uh, along that journey, we we got to the point where, you know, you have to go through all the different things of uh, arranging flights, booking hotels, getting car rentals, and all the process that it takes to get to a place so that you can travel halfway across the world. And that was in 2020, and so the scheduled date was for July, and I'd gone through all of those things to prepare to go on that trip, and then just like everything else that we experienced, the obstacle of COVID hit, right? And everything got shut down, and this trip of a lifetime that I'd been looking forward to suddenly had a lot more challenges, suddenly had a lot more barriers, and even the possibility or the reality, I at one point was not sure if this trip was ever going to it to happen again. I thought that maybe that window had closed, and fortunately, it kind of reopened a little bit in 21. Uh, I went through that same process again of, of looking, and they said, well, the tourism of Israel might open up for the summer, and so we went through that process again, only to have that shut down uh, once again. And so after two years of uh, trying to get to this place to worship God and experiencing these obstacles and resistance, uh, you know, this past summer finally got to go. But it wasn't even easy after I went through that again of booking, traveling, uh, you know, getting the COVID shot so we could go and visit that. That was like a battle that I had to kind of work through as myself personally. Uh, But then also on that Sunday morning when I'm supposed to fly out uh, at 10 a.m., my flight's scheduled for 5 p.m., I get this text message right between Sunday school and church of, hey, your flight's been canceled. Uh, And so I had to again scramble this challenge of like trying to find a flight between services as I'm trying to get ready to preach and come up on stage I was like do I even have any flights options and just going through that and like all this hectic nature of just getting to a place where you can go to these sacred spaces and in that process and in that journey maybe it's natural to ask that question is it really worth it 
Is it worth all that effort? Is it worth all those challenges? Is it worth all the, uh, the obstacles? Is it worth all the delays to go to these places just to be in a place that you could, you know, go to YouTube and Google and search and, and walk with somebody in that way? Is it worth it to go to these spaces of worship? And that's really something that you have to uh, define and decide on yourself by yourself, and I think that's really something that we ask ourselves at different levels, at different phases and places in our life, as even this Sunday morning, you had to go through that and make that decision, why do I want to worship? Why do I want to go through this process? Is it really worth it? And why am I worshiping this God? Why am I worshiping who I worship in the way that I'm doing that? I think that's a question that people ask throughout all generations, across all cultures, is who do you worship and, and why do you worship that? Why do you worship what or who you worship? I think that answer is different for a lot of people as you look across the globe, but we universally are designed and created to worship something I think some people worship a god or a religion or a faith or a deity or an object or an interest because of prosperity. Sometimes we feel like it's going to make us wealthy. Sometimes what we worship is for favor. Uh, we're hoping that it gives us something, that it blesses us somehow. Sometimes people worship something for protection. You know, very common that you would pray that God would protect you, or in other cultures, they would sacrifice grain for the protection of the sun god. Sometimes people worship things out of fear because they're more powerful and stronger than you, and you all you can do is just lay your, your hands out and accept whatever they give you. And many cultures have felt that way about things that they didn't understand, worshiping God's out of fear because they might come down, they might strike lightning if you don't do everything right. Some cultures in some places do it because of the promises that they hope to get. Maybe there's a deal in it for them. Maybe they worship it like, if I do these certain things, if I go through these certain uh, criteria, then I will be promised something in return. Maybe it's for something like fertility that people go and worship something. You know, there's pretty common uh, of adding to your blessings of fertility gods in ancient history. You know, on my pilgrimage, one of the destinations that got added to our trip was this uh, city of Caesarea Philippi. And it was a place that would have not really been a destination location for Jesus uh, had it not been for this one instance. You see, Caesarea Philippi is kind of out of the way when you look at the nation and the country of Israel. It, it's even above, the Sea of Galilee is high up in Israel, but even beyond that, you have to get to this location, Caesarea Philippi. It's along the mountains of Mount Hermon, and it's kind of out of the way. It's not really someplace that you just happenstancely go by. You have to be intentional about getting there, and especially in Jesus and his ministry, it's not like if he went to Jerusalem on his journey or the pilgrimage to the temple, this is in the opposite direction. It's not something that he would have naturally gone to. It wasn't a place of worship that, that he would have for any other reason than for the purpose of being intentionally going that way, that he would ever end up there. You know, people in the time of Jesus, though, went to great lengths to worship at places because of the different things that they worshiped. 
the different gods and the things that those gods would offer them. If you look at the entirety of, of the day and age of Jesus, you have the Roman Empire that is spread throughout that entire area, and you look at what is at the heart of the Roman Empire, and worship is really at the core of a lot of things they do. If you think about the mythological gods, uh, the temples that they built to different things, uh, to different people, to different uh, for different reasons, Zeus, uh, Aramedia is different things. It's just ingrained in the way that they did things and the things that they built, the structures that they did, and their daily routine involved these acts of worship. And so Caesarea Philippi is actually a result of the Roman Empire and it being important to that as you can get the sense of the fact that the word Caesar is part of that. And the Philippi built it to honor Caesar and so he named it kind of in that line and in that vein and that's where they get the name of the Caesarea Philippi. But it wasn't the city that was really integral or crucial to a lot of the Jewish people and especially to the Jewish faith. It wasn't one of those places that you check off the list of this is a destination location because of certain things that God did here or uh, certain things that God was known for being in that. In fact, actually, this is kind of one of those uh, outlying places that had a very, instead of positive connotations like Jerusalem had with the different patriarchs, this area was actually had this negative connotation. It's like the dark corner of Israel. And instead of being a place that people flocked to to worship and connect with God, it was this place that people, at least in the Jewish faith, would avoid because of its connection to other things. In fact, it's one of the most infamous first century worship locations for the negative reasons. There was an ancient connection, and it was called the gateway to the underworld, the gods and other spiritual beings. So there was this darkness that was associated with it. And going back even to the Old Testament, it affiliates with that region called Bashan with an evil giant clan of connection to the infamous Nephilim who could have been spawned from the sons of God who rebelled and give birth to idolatry and the Rephraim and Acrium descendants of the Nephilim. And so there is this connection to these ancient gods of fallen angels who came down and disobeyed and, and broke away from God. And this is kind of the area that they inhabited. And so for that reason, even going back to the Old Testament times, there was this darkness to us, this rebellious, idolatrous uh, uh, impact and influence and, and shadow of it. In fact, in this place, as you see that cave, it was known as the Gate of Hades or Gehenna or what we know as, of as hell. And so there was always this place of judgment in this instance. It was likely to refers to the dead, the underworld, you know, the Hebrew word Sheol. And so because of that and in addition to that, this was also a place that people would go to worship Baal. As the Israelites rebelled from God, as they did their own thing, this was one of those corners that they would go to to set up idols to worship Baal as well. And so whenever they wanted to get away from God, this is kind of where they set up shop. And generation after generation, it, it, it tends to be this place that creates this history this culture of being a place to worship something other than God. And so if you wanted to run away from God, this is a good place. 
to go. And what you don't see in this picture is the history, the horror, and all of this, this melting pot of different people with different beliefs coming, this pantheistic idea so separate from the monotheistic God that we know and worship on Sunday mornings. And so in the time of Jesus, as if he would have come in here, it would not have looked like that first picture. It actually would have looked like this. And there behind it was, we can go back to that previous slide, please. Maybe. Yeah, that one. All right. So the cave entrance is what is still there, and that was known as the gate of Hades or the gate of hell. And they believed that that was actually a portal into the underworld. It was the lore that went along with it. And so if you wanted to build something that connected you to the darkness, to the demons, to the evil, and kind of be in that line of thinking, then this is why they came and built, set up all these things. So in Jesus' era, this is kind of what have been the way it looked. There was the temple of Augustus that was set up to the Roman Empire. There's this court of Pan, and Pan was a god that was also associated with this idea of being able to be the only god who could actually go back and forth between the underworld and our world. And so it had a un he had a unique ability uh, and this unique darkness, this unique capability of connecting Hades with the earth. And this is the passageway that they believed he used to go between these different places. We also have the temple of Zeus there, uh, the god of mythology who the, wor the Romans worship for, and we're very familiar with. But also on that other side, you have the upper tomb, I guess on that side for you guys, the upper tomb temple and the lower tomb temple. And in this area, this is a place that uh, sacrifices would happen, uh, dances would happen, that where they would come and they would bring their things and they would uh, have these elaborate uh, different ordeals that were performed. Uh, they would have these rituals that they would carry out. And part of this was the idea of there's a connection with goats there, and they would sacrifice goats, uh, and the idea of this doing this for fertility, that they would be blessed if they sacrificed. And actually in that cave entrance at different times, people would throw their children in there as sacrifices. A lot of evil things happened there. You know, even with these goats, as part of this fertility, in, uh, decent things would happen with these goats, even beyond sacrificing to them. And so this is a place that, as you can imagine, in the day of, age of Jesus, had a lot of unclean things. And as a nation that was trying to stay pure, this is not a place that they would go. There was false worship, there was idolatry, there was impurity. And so if you ask Jesus, you know, of the different places that you want to go to really show that you are God's son, if you really wanted to go to establish a, a place and, you know, kind of do some missions work or outreach, this isn't a place that was on the list is that Jesus would have maybe, if he would have sat down with the disciples and said, hey, do you guys, where do you guys want to go to this week? This is the farthest from where they would have said. This is not the place that we would expect Jesus to go near, much less intentionally travel with his disciples too. But in the third year of Jesus' public ministry, as the time of crucifixion nears, that's exactly what he does. He removes himself from the public eye away and goes on this retreat so that he could take his disciples to this place. 
And it's not an easy walk. In fact, it takes about 18 or 14 hours to get there from where Jesus was around the Galilee at that time. It's this 30-mile journey from there. And so he takes his disciples on this trip, this forbidden place with cultic and evil worship. You know, so to kind of put this in modern context, it would be like if, uh, you know, I sat down with leadership and I had a meeting and said, hey guys, we're going to go, everybody's going to pile in the van, we're going to make this 14-hour trip, I'm guessing it's around that, to Vegas. And we're going to go there, not only are we going to go to Vegas as a leadership, but we're going to go to a casino, and in the back of the casino there's a strip club, and, uh, you know, they also actually uh, add extra services if we want that available, and we're going to go in there, and we're going to use this and really just connect, but also also have we make this powerful illustration this powerful statement uh, there would be a lot of questions being raised about our legitimacy for needing to go there uh, the, the questionable uh, meaning of why we would need to go there and so you know it might be extremely memorable but it's also extremely questionable right and that's essentially what Jesus does in with his disciples and so that's the, you know, the closest thing I think I ever did in ministry was drive a youth group to a cemetery to talk about life and death. Uh, that's the most questionable thing I did. I never took him on a trip like that. But Jesus does this for this powerful point to make. And we read about it and we find it in Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And it's Christ's declaration about the church that was given this powerful significance because of the fact that it's uttered at this place. So he's here in the shadows of these temples, the shadows of the sounds of the sacrifices, you know, this gate of Hades that is known as the gate of hell. And he's standing on these rocks. He's standing in these places as all of these things are going around. And he gathers his disciples together. And this is what plays out. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so he's asking, who do people worship? Who do they value? Who do they seek? Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, son of Simon, of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by the flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And so he changes his name right here. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind here on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So when Jesus tells Peter that on this rock I will build my church and the gate of Hades will not overcome it, there's this powerful imagery of the fact that they are standing in the presence of a place known as the gate of Hades. And he's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. 
And no matter what evil, no matter what vileness, no matter what is going on here, it cannot overcome the kingdom of heaven. No matter what people worship here, no matter what evil has been established here, no matter what darkness has invaded and perforated from this place, the kingdom of God will be able to overcome that. And so here he is with this, and Jesus is saying that he has the power to conquer the forces of darkness associated with the underworld, and that that power will be the church, and that we can be part of that that overcomes that. There's nothing more powerful than that. And it's in this confession that Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That Jesus bestows that name and that title on him. Jesus fulfilled this declaration by dying on the cross and raising on the third day. And today, his church, as you can see, all that's left there are ruins. And in fact, the water doesn't even flow out of there like it did. There was an earthquake about a thousand years ago that shifted the entire landscape of that. And so this place that they used to view as the portal to hell is now completely closed off. And so Jesus seems to be saying that through this moment and in this moment, the church will overcome the powers of evil and death itself. You know, in the original Greek, it it lacks the preposition against in the verse. And this phrase may literally be rendered, the gates of hells will not withstand it. Jesus is teaching that after his death, that people will either enter the kingdom of God or be cast into hell as well. And it's interesting as we uh, live our lives, as we study the word, as we study scriptures, as we study Jesus' life, he brings up this Hades or this hell oftentimes. And I think it's something that we kind of work through as Christians. And really as we're talking about living our life and worshiping God and establishing the kingdom and we have this picture of being able to go to heaven, there's that constant contrast of of heaven and hell, right? That we've kind of painted these images. And so I think it's important for us to look at a little bit about what Jesus actually taught about hell. I think clarity oftentimes helps us with being able to not be confused by the, the things that the world has taught us, by things that we've had that we maybe read in other places, images that we've gotten from other places. So what does Jesus actually say about hell? And in fact, in his discussions, there's three aspects of his teaching that he kind of hits on or highlights using the words Hades. Uh, And that includes its inhabitants. Jesus frequently describes those who are destined for Hades, and he tells, you know, we talked about last week in Capernaum, that their unbelief would lead them to Hades. Jesus also warns of several sins that might condemn one to Hades, and that's why we fight and resist and and try to stay away from sin as much as possible, because Jesus taught that that will condemn us to Hades if we're living in spiritual sin. You know, he tells us to stay away from those tendencies. For Jesus, uh, he also talked about that a person is either a child of Hades or a child of Abraham. So he separates everyone into these two camps. You're in one or the other. There's not a third option. And Jesus also questions the scribes and their Pharisees and their hypocrisy and how they expect to escape the condemnation of Hades if they are committing the sins of their ancestors. 
And so Jesus tells us that there's going to be one or two places that you end up based on the choices you make, the beliefs you hold, and the way that you live your life, who you choose to worship in a sense. And Jesus' description of hell is that it is an eternal fire where the devil and his angels are destined. He also calls it a great abyss and also a place of darkness where a person will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping suggests his suffering and pain while the gnashing of teeth suggests despair and anger. So it's not a place that we want to go. Beyond these images, Jesus also portrays hell in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that passage, this is depicted as this permanent place of torments. And so it's not a place that we want to go. It's Jesus paints this image of a place that you don't want to go. And that is who and why he is coming to rescue us from that. He doesn't desire for his children to experience any of those things. And so he's saying there's another thing. Because this isn't just a temporary thing. Jesus also paints this image and teaches this thought that the duration of hell's punishment is eternal. It's one that doesn't end. It's one that is there forever. And so in Matthew, it seems that the punishment being forever isn't just temporary. And so Jesus claims that upon his death, some people will go to an eternal punishment while others will enter into eternal life. And so those are some of the things that Jesus teaches about hell. It's not something that really is a pretty picture. It's not something that, that we want to experience. And he's saying this is the alternative to having eternal life. And I've come to rescue you. I've come to overthrow that. I've come to provide another option. I've come to give you a way and in Colossians 2.15, it says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I think the thing that Jesus really wanted to teach his disciples and them to be assured of is that nothing would stand against the kingdom of God. That God wasn't going to give up on humanity. That even in the darkest places, God's kingdom would be able to shine a light. That Jesus was the Messiah. That they had identified him as that. And he was that. That he was coming to give them what they had been looking for for so long. That even the people who were the worst off, he had the best option. And I think he's really putting them in this idea and putting them in this position to uh, kind of really process and think what and who were they willing to worship and the internal impact of that. And I think that's something that we all have to think about, something that we all have to wrestle through and the decisions that we make about who we worship, whether that be for favor, whether that be promises, whether that be fear, whether that be prosperity, whether that be whatever the reason is that you choose to worship something, we have to realize that that has an eternal impact. No matter what we choose to worship, it has an eternal impact. The things that we choose to do has a benefit or a consequence. 
And in our lives, as we struggle to decide on what to worship, we need to keep that in the back of our mind. And Jesus tells us that we don't want the alternative, and he wants us to worship God because God is a creator of everything. God is a God of power, and he has given us a way. He's given us a church that we can be a part of that will overcome something no other religion can deliver, the powers over evil and death itself. As Jesus stood in front of those places, he said, I have something better. I have something that is more significant. I have something that we can build that will overcome all of this. In the Bible, we read about people who had different relationships with God, who had different connections to God. And it's interesting and inspiring the lengths of which they would go to worship God. If you think of the different people in Scripture, like Abraham, who was willing to leave everything behind to go to a place that God promised him. If you think about Noah and the amount of time that he dedicated to building the ark so that he could be uh, in obedience to God. If you think about David and the things that the temple that or Solomon as he built this temple and this cost and the sacrifice that it cost to put that together so that they could have a place to worship. God, people who in throughout history, and even as I traveled there, you met people who came from all over the world who came to this one place to try to worship God and to do in a new and a unique experience. Because we realize that the power that God has in our lives, the power that God has in the universe, and the significance of being able to go to a place and sitting there and worshiping God is something that connects to our soul, is something that feeds us, that, that drives us, that inspires us. And that's why we make the journey into this place every Sunday too, is because we want to experience that connection God's power, his peace, his presence, whatever it is that we need from him that day. It's because Jesus took that stand. It's because Jesus was willing to go on this pilgrimage and think about the lengths that he went to provide a way for us to worship, that he would leave heaven, that he would leave peace, that he would leave the security, and that we'd come down to earth, and he would go to that length that he would be willing to live his life as a human. He was willing to face those temptations, to overcome those struggles, to invest in humans, to teach them these lessons, to allow them to beat his body, to allow him to be crucified. He was willing to go to death so that we could experience life, so that we could experience the Holy Spirit, so we could experience worship in a way that people before that never could. That we could be part of the church that Jesus wanted to build. And it's powerful. It's promising. And I hope that that's what you experience on a daily basis or a weekly basis or however often you intentionally go and seek to meet with God, wherever that might be. You know, there's always going to be people that we interact with that God has used in fantastic and wonderful ways. You know, we get to support people who are willing to go to great lengths to share the gospel message. And, you know, one of the things that we can consistently ask ourselves as we live out our faith for God, as we decide daily if we want to commit to the cross, 
is, is why do I go to great lengths to worship at the places that I get to experience? Why am I willing to go to those lengths? And what lengths am I willing to go to? I think for me personally, as I process this, was that I am willing to go to these lengths. I'm willing to go through these different things because I get to be part of a kingdom that Jesus was a part of, that Jesus established. I get to be part of something that Jesus committed to as well. I also get to connect with other believers who worship with God and are encouraged. And I hope that as you were doing that this morning, as we were singing those songs, that you felt a connection to other people. That's one of the reasons that I go to the lengths that I do, that I've committed my life to being a servant of God, is that I want that experience of being able to worship with other people. That's why I've gone on different trips, led different uh, youth group events to go to places like CIY to experience those connections of worshiping God collectively and corporately. I'm also willing to go to those lengths because I want to equip myself with the truth of the Bible, of who God is, so that I cannot just confront but conquer the evils of this world. I choose to worship God because He provides a way to overcome evil, to overcome darkness, to give us a way to live more powerfully. I'd rather be on the winning team than the losing team is what it comes down to, right? And that's why I go to the great lengths and, and go to the, through the preparation, the, the time of committing to these different things. And that's what I kind of concluded for myself, is that that is why I am willing to go to these lengths. Because it allows me to be committed, it allows me to be connected, and allows me to be part of the conquering team. Now that's a question that maybe you're wrestling with, is do I want to commit to this Thing? Why do I want to weekly come to worship God? Why do I want to daily pick up that cross? Why do I want to spend time in prayer, time in study, time of putting myself out there, of trying to spread the message of God? Why do I want to grow? Why do I want to connect? Why do I want to serve? And really, the reason for that is laid out by Jesus. And the opportunity to be a part of a kingdom that is promised in the gospel as a way of saving us, of rescuing us from the darkest places that we could ever be or find ourselves, with the opportunity to join Jesus in the light. Because that is more powerful than any darkness, is the salvation for anyone who believes, and the life change that comes with that the opportunity to build and grow on that and conquer the things in this world that tear so many people apart, that change so many people, that break so many people. I personally feel that God's kingdom is greater than any other kingdom and the opportunity to worship in a way that is unlike any other place. To be a part of something so amazing is reason enough to reach and to go to any lengths to worship at the place where I find connection to the cross. I hope that's the way you feel too, and I would encourage you to daily do that. Be intentional about finding ways to worship, finding ways to be grateful, finding ways to conquer because God enables us to do so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus 
Lord, I thank you that you would go even to the darkest places to rescue us, to teach us, to establish your kingdom, that there's no place off limits. There's no evil too great. There's dark, no darkness too dark. Lord, you are the light, you are the life, and you are the victory. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to be part of your kingdom. Lord, as a church, we pray that we rely on your Holy Spirit to empower us to go into the dark places in our country, in our culture, in our maybe sometimes families, to shine your light there. Lord, to bring to hope, to bring help, to bring a rescue. Lord, we thank you for using us in your kingdom. Lord, help us to live our lives for you more fully and more boldly every day. In Jesus' name, amen.